Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today I'm delighted to welcome a pioneer in the study of psychedelics for mental health treatment and the father of microdosing, Dr. Jim Fadiman. Over the last 40 years, he's held a wide variety of teaching, consulting, training, counseling, editorial, and other positions, and he's also produced a wide variety of writing and artistic projects, including films. Among his publications is the book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys, as well as the book, Symphony of Selves, which I just finished reading a couple of weeks ago, on his recommendation, as well as the recommendation of Sam Harris, who he has a wonderful group of dialogues with. I'm looking forward to hearing from Jim about rising interest in plant-based medicines and other psychedelics to address mental health issues and what the students and providers in our audience should know about the space. So Jim, it's an honor to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm very supportive and interested in what you're doing and I'm very glad to be here. Thank you so much. And so your stories from your books are very fascinating. You mentioned how you got into the space largely because you were taught by Ram Das himself um, and uh, met up with him in Paris, I believe, when he was on the way to a conference with Timothy O'Leary and uh, Alice Huxley in Copenhagen. So for our audience that doesn't know, I would love to hear more about that experience and what got you interested in this space in the first place. <laughs> well, Dick Alpert at the time, Ram Das later, was my undergraduate kind of professor and then mentor. And then I was an, uh, an intern for a summer of research. So we were friends. And I was living in Paris, uh, avoiding the draft and recovering from college. And he came over on his way to the first conference of international psychologists that would be told about psychedelics. And he said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me. And I thought, well, that's nice. He's my friend. And he said, and I want to share it with you. And I thought, how bad can that be? And then he takes from his breast pocket this little bottle of pills, and I freak. I am so straight, I don't drink coffee, okay? But he's my friend, and so I have what was then found out, a moderate dose of psilocybin, and we're sitting outdoors in Paris at a cafe, and its colors are getting brighter, and the noises are getting clearer, and I'm aware of the conversations of people behind me as they walk by. And then I realize I don't speak French that well. I've been living in France now in 10 months. I've never been able to hear those conversations. So I say, this is too much for me. And he says, too much for me too. And I said, well, you didn't take anything. He said, it's my first night in Paris. <laughs> so we retired to my sixth floor walk up uh, where there was at least room for both of us. And uh, I learned a lot about what I was attached to and, and what was important and what wasn't. And a week later, I followed him to Copenhagen and, and found out more. And a few months later, my draft board and I worked out an agreement is if I went to graduate school, they would wait to send me to Vietnam until it was over. So at graduate school, I actually then worked with an off-campus research group uh, approved of by the government, giving LSD and then high doses uh, as a clinical facility. And it was from those that experience with that group that my career unfolded. And it's been quite a career since. And obviously that origin story was pretty remarkable. Um, there's been a renaissance, obviously, in the space of plant-based medicines and psychedelics. And a lot of popular figures, including most recently Will Smith, a little less popular after the Chris Rock incident, but he himself spoke about many of his experiences with plant-based medicine and trying to better understand himself and 
you know, going through um, bouts of depression, among other things. So this renaissance has come out, and fortunately, you're here to help uh, explain to our audience a bit more about the evidence around microdosing, around psychedelics, and what gets you most excited about the space and, and the renaissance itself. Any commentary you have on that? Sure. Well, let, let's step back a little, because plant-based medicine, many of your audience knows that probably 70% of what are called pharmaceuticals are plant-based medicines. So when we say plant-based medicines out here in the psychedelic space, we're talking about a few plants. They happen to, to grow in most places. We're also talking about fungi. Uh, there are 200 species of psilocybin mushrooms that are found around the planet. It's not an uncommon um, life form. And what the Renaissance, which someone very reasonably said, it wasn't a Renaissance, it's really a revival. It's simply taking the 40 years when the federal government said, thou shalt not learn anything, and catching up. So we're now doing the kind of research that we were doing really 40 years ago, only now we have a lot more um, elaborate procedures and elaborate protocols but we're getting basically the same results, which is in a good situation, in a good setting with trained people, high doses of psychedelics apparently are beneficial for a number of conditions. And I'm being deliberately vague because the number of conditions keeps, we keep adding. Microdosing, totally other world. Microdosing can be defined by saying it has no classic psychedelic effects, no distortions in, in the visual world, no, no visions, no God speaking to you personally, also not being eaten alive by giant anaconda snakes. Very, very common, by the way, in ayahuasca. None of that fascinating stuff. No incredible insights and reliving several past lives. None of that. Microdosing is closer in its, in its overall effects, Adderall and coffee, which is people report that their system works better when they are microdosing. And that the microdose is such a small dose that it's, it's I think someone described it as sub-hallucinogenic, meaning no distortions and no interference with functioning. Now, that definition actually comes from um, the citizen science part of microdosing, which we'll talk about, and this is the, the heading of a sub-edit in Reddit called microdosing. And if any of your uh, listeners look it up, they will notice it has 200,000 members. So this is not a cult. Uh, this is not a kind of scientific oddity. This is even not um, what all the rest of the Renaissance is doing. This is a worldwide interest and I have reports in my research crowd, in my kind of data from 51 countries, but that was a few years ago. A uh, recent article in Nature Science Reports was reports from 80, I think 84 countries. So this is not a rare event, and it has been highly studied and observed by thousands and thousands of people and a few research groups. But they came later, and we'll look at what they found if, if we get that far. Yeah, no, we definitely will. And so, you know, there's a lot of obviously interest and and you've tapped into the citizen science community where people have documented uh, their use of microdosing among other dosages, not just not, not just microdosing. Um, but you developed an approach that's known as the Fadiman protocol for microdosing, um, where it's one day on and two days off. Correct. For our audience, some of whom 
probably are doing this and others definitely have patients who come to them who are doing this. Can you explain that and maybe what things they should be know they should know about or look out for? Yeah. Well, let's let's look at the the, the whole question of protocols, which is a, a kind of classy word for how often. And the protocol I came up with, this was about 11 years ago, was a research protocol. I was trying to find out what was going on, what were people reporting, and could they tell the difference between microdose days and non-microdose days, which is the kind of first level of, is this a placebo? And what I found is people would report that the day in which they microdosed, they were very aware of how they felt. This next day, they had most of the same feelings. And the third day, they felt they were where they'd started. So they went back to base. And that's a perfect research design so that you use your own subjects kind of over and over again, starting from base. Well, so understand pure research protocol, no awareness that it would become popular as a using, using protocol. Okay. And we also asked people to take fairly elaborate notes for a month and send them to us. The why a month? Because we figured that's about the limit that people who are basically helping other people and don't know them are willing to do. But we found is that after about 30 days, which would be eight or nine um, cycles, people were reporting that the third day was pretty good too. So that that's become a popular protocol because one of the important things about microdosing and psychedelics in general is if you use it too often, you develop tolerance, which means there's no effect. And what has emerged in the microdose community, totally unresearched and totally agreed on, is that when people are microdosing regularly more than a month or two, they believe it's a good idea to take from a week to a month off. And that is pretty well standard around the world with the various groups who've emerged who are now doing kind of microdosing more professionally. Um, so this is a, almost everything I'm gonna tell you is both um, citizen science based and fairly large numbers of people have reported the same thing independently, which is the way science has always been until very, very recently. Yeah, no, that is fascinating. It's interesting how it started off as a research protocol and now it's used quite commonly. Um, it, you know, it's not just about psilocybin or other psychedelics, but, um, you know, Michael Pollan, obviously, who, who you know well, has popularized, uh, and he cites you often in his books, has popularized this field. He was talking to Joe Rogan on one of his podcasts about uh, caffeine and how Roland Griffiths at, at Hopkins, the researcher who is using psilocybin for end-of-life care among cancer patients, recommended that he try getting off of caffeine, right? A very common plant-based medicine that most of us are on. Um, and, and the evolutionary basis of caffeine, he, he writes very beautifully in his most recent book um, about, you know, going into, into that, you know, I'm curious, why do you think these effects even evolve? Like why would a fungus or, uh, you know, these plants have these psychedelic effects? Uh, and then how is it working in the mind? Why is it that nature does that? Why is it that nature puts into a mushroom that grows most easily in the dung of animals, uh, gives people improved health at low doses and a vision of transcendent love and humanity at a higher dose? Um, is that a really serious question <laughs> that human beings are supposed to answer? I mean, that's kind of like saying to a tree, how come you're so big? <laughs> the fact is that we seem to be designed, that we have receptors that 
different chemicals in the world affect. There is a, a lovely theory that human beings' brains began to enlarge when they started using psilocybin. When the climate change happened, forests were going away, savannas were coming, there were ruminants who ate, and therefore there was dung, and therefore there were mushrooms. Um, there's other theories that I happen to like better, such as the invention of fire, which changed your ability to absorb protein by cooking food. Um, there's a lovely theory that says social animals, of which primates are, very complicated whenever, as we know, when you're in a relationship, it really stretches your brain. So there are lots of reasons why the brain might have gotten larger. And the, the question of why is it that, you know, is this mushroom and not that mushroom, or the bark of this tree, um, or uh, peyote, which is the kind of the smallest and maybe the ugliest of plants, um, and also, by the way, the slowest growing cactus that we know of. Um, why do all these things, not only do they affect human beings, but how did human beings know enough to pick them up and eat them? Mushrooms, one can make an argument that they might taste good as many mushrooms do. Why anyone in the world ever ate peyote, um, it doesn't go from the rational kind of Western point of view. And if you say to the to the indigenous groups, why is it that you're using ayahuasca, which is one plant, and then some other plant, and then you boil it for five hours? Well, us anthropologists, our theory is that's by chance. <laughs> What's your theory? And the natives say, it's hard to imagine how stupid you are, but I'm going to be nice to you because you're in my forest and you're going to, you know, you don't do very well. But probably the reason we use it is the plants suggested it. And there is in numerous different uh, indigenous systems worldwide, the notion that some plants are teachers, that they actually are one of their designs, like having fruit is to have information. And that information is valuable to at least, at least our species. Um, mushrooms are eaten by at least 31 primate groups. Amanita muscaria, what looks like the Christmas mushroom that you've seen in all the little children's pictures, um, is eaten by reindeer. Um, so there are connections between the plant and animal world, which if you take away the kind of humans are the only smart species ever, makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And then there's a document documentation that even dolphins, they have psychedelic type experiences uh, from Pufferfish in high doses, that's toxic. In lower doses, probably still a little toxic, but obviously leads to these interesting states. You know, most most dolphins know enough not to overdose. <laughs> <laughs> Humans can learn a lot from that too, I guess. <laughs> One of my favorite lines in your in your book, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, is uh, if you take a little bit of you know, uh, say a mushroom or a plant based medicine, you think you can talk to God. If you think if you take a little bit more, you think God is talking to you. And if you take a little bit more than that, you don't know the difference between you and God. And so I'm curious, like from a dosage perspective, any insights you have around mechanisms of action and why, you know, if you're microdosing at say 0.1 grams uh, versus taking a hero dose of five grams, like what exactly is happening in the body, not just mentally, but I'm sure there's systemic effects that, that you've studied and know a lot more about. Well, that's, I mean, that's just a wonderful question because we've really never, well, we haven't looked at it because we're still in the kind of primitive stage of saying, um, 
look, look at the picture of the brain. Look, look at the picture of the brain with psilocybin. There are many more colored lines in the pictures of the brain with psilocybin. So what we know is, translating the colored lines, is there's more connectivity between parts of the brain. Now, the question is, when you raise the dose, do you just have more connectivity or are there thresholds in which other phenomena can occur? And probably it is that. And the question, see, the question is, why is it that a high dose seems to be almost able to be on demand with the right set and setting, a transcendent experience? And why does that transcendent experience map perfectly with transcendent experiences as written in the great religious and mystical traditions? So it looks like it's a common, uh, it's accessible to human beings. Now, why is that or how is that done? Um, probably Western medicine is not very good at, at figuring that out. Because for instance, aside from the pretty colored pictures, they talk about a particular neuron 5-2A and its affinity for psychedelics. And then they say, brain, 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 brain. And I, every once in a while, if I get a neuroscientist sitting down, I say, where are all the neurons in the body? Are they all in the brain? No. Are there more in the gut than in the brain? Maybe. <laughs> Have you measured anything in the, in the gut? No. <laughs> Are you aware that there's, you know, like 10,000 species of bacteria in the gut that affect cognition, respiration, sexual arousal, everything on their own? Yes, we know about that, but we haven't figured anything out yet. So we're at a very early stage. And so it's a wonderful question. And, um, you know, call me back in 100 years and I'll give you the agreed upon answer and three of the other groups who disagree. <laughs> the question that, that I'm interested in is where is it safe? Where is it useful? And where is it not safe and not useful? That's all I can handle. Let's get into that because obviously, you know, it's been a tough couple of years, uh, let's just say the least, with COVID. And uh, we had uh, one of our previous raised line guests was Thomas Insum, uh, who is the director of the National Institute of Medical, uh, Mental Health, as you know. Yeah. You know, the wonderful book recently. And Joe Biden, the State of the Union, talks about the mental health crisis. So there's a lot of interest in mental health, clearly. There always has been, but especially because of COVID and Ukraine and all sorts of things happening in the world, much more interest. What do you want our audience to know? Many of them are healthcare professionals or students on their way to being professionals about that question around use cases now with their patients come to them with it. Um, what should be, what should they know? The issue for mental health was before the pandemic is that a great many psychopharmaceuticals don't work very well, period. That is even if you read the promotional literature from the companies, uh, most SSRIs admit from the onset, 30% of people will get no benefit. What they don't discuss is long-term effects of using SSRIs. And it turns out that if you say, go to the companies who make several billion dollars a year off of any given SSRI, and you say, can I see your long-term studies for five, 10, 15 years of use? They say, well, we don't have any. Well, what do you have? Well, I've got some six month studies. So if you go to the federal government, who actually did a few of these studies, um, it turns out that on a long-term study, people with depression, for example, who use SSRIs have a worse prognosis than people who never did, okay? 
So the mental health problem crisis is that we don't have good solutions. Remember, we had a COVID crisis and we've come up, vaccines really work enormously well for almost everyone. That's terrific. So we don't, we don't say there's a, we say there's a COVID crisis, but we've, we're, we're doing well with it in the countries that vaccinate or with the human beings who vaccinate. Um, mental health is not done so well. And so we're looking, uh, when you have a system that isn't working well, it's much more open innovation. And what we know is that high dose, carefully given psychedelics have a likelihood of mental health improvement across diagnostic categories. Now, when I say categories and you say, well, but what's the research? We know that these studies say we don't take people who had prior psychotic breaks. We don't take schizophrenics. We don't take bipolar people. And the answer is you don't take them because they spoil the study. And if they get crazy later, you'll be blamed. In the citizen science world where I live, where people have access to these psychedelics and have had that since they were, you know, before they were illegal, we have a lot of data of people with serious mental illnesses self-improving by self-administering high doses of psychedelic. I don't recommend it, but the data is there. Um, I finally, you know, I was interested in bipolar and I asked my, my smart science buddies, what's the data since you never take anyone into these, these current research? And they, so I got some data and there was none. They basically have not been testing the group of who need it most ever. So I then went to where we go for serious scientific evidence, which is Facebook. And I went to the bipolar sites and I asked the moderator, can I ask your site, do you guys have anything to say about psychedelic use? And they said, we do, we do. If you're bipolar, don't take a psychedelic high dose when you're manic. You're already losing it. When you're depressed, it's very helpful. So that's just information that's out there. When you get into microdosing, which, which seems to have as, as good a track record, certainly better than SSRIs, and as good as high dose, we find first and for depression, approximately 80% of the people who take it for depression. And remember, you only take a psychedelic for depression if you've tried what your physician gave you. So we're dealing with this crazy misnomer called treatment resistant, which means the treatments weren't good. It isn't that and none of the patients ever resisted. <laughs> okay. But these are what we call treatment failures. And um, about 80% of people in the high dose studies um, are enormously improved. And about 80% of the people who report from the surveys of microdose use also report improvement. Now, remember, whenever you're looking at a survey, it's going to be much more, uh, you're going to get much higher percentage of people who find it valuable. You know, if you're asked to, to rate soft drinks and you don't like any of them, you're not going to fill in the study and they'll never know. So all surveys are, are kind of by definition optimistic. However, if you're dealing with a mental health crisis and it seems to help a lot of people, it looks like it's worth a try particularly if it has a, a low toxicity problem, a low intervention with other medication problems, and it doesn't interfere with normal function. 
And that's really where we are with microdosing. Um, and we've just been adding one more level, which is microdosing with coaching. And this comes really perhaps out of the executive coach world where very healthy people can still get help. So we're finding that microdose coaching as now done in about 10 countries um, seems to also be very helpful since it also corrects issues that come up in, in a microdosing regime. Remember, we're not talking about one dose. This is a aperiodic uh, use. And so you're really observing people over months. And let me give you just one that should startle the medical people. And we don't have a lot of cases, but in botany and biology and astronomy, one case says it exists. Okay, in medicine, they say, well, we need a larger sample, which really usually means send more money for another study. But let me just give you an example of one person. This is a diabetic, diabetes totally controlled with insulin, same dose level under medical supervision, 14 years, very stable. For other reasons, she gets interested in microdosing. She works with a microdose coach. And within about a month, her insulin use begins to drop. Okay, now it's several months in, she is taking 20% of her insulin dose. Okay, now we all know that diabetes is highly physiological. We're talking about cells that, that are not working properly. We know a lot about the system. There is no known reason, except if you have a very different view of the way the mind-body works, that this woman should exist. Okay. <laughs> it's very exciting. I mean, that's yeah. uh, these unknowns, these gaps of knowledge, even, even empirically like anecdotes and stuff are very exciting, you know, especially for those of our audience who are listening, who are interested in this space. There's so much research they could be doing, uh, especially now that things are opening up again. And I, that, that was a question I would have for you is, you know, you've been through the space, through the, through the desert, you know, and now back out through the revival, you know, where do you see, I mean, not to, not to ask you to prognosticate too much, but, you know, say it's 2050, like, where do you see us? Well, right now, if we go to a country that um, is not as frightened as we are, uh, Holland, what are called truffles, which is the mushroom just before it breaks the surface, are legal. And so there's a group called the Microdosing Institute of Holland, of the Netherlands, and they basically uh, suggest that people can purchase truffles in, in a number of shops and they take a, a small amount over a protocol like the Fatiman protocol and other protocols. Um, and they have about 5,000 people they've worked with. So we have a lot of evidence of it being used in a normal way in a normal civilized country and a lot of research now coming out of it because as they say, it's inexpensive, it's legal and we use volunteers. So our costs are very low. So there is a study now, for instance, does microdosing affect ADHD? Okay. Lots of anecdotes by students who say, since I've been microdosing, and they report improved focus, and they also have nice, um, nice measurables, which is their grades go up. So we have a lot of what, what people call anecdotal data, what I just call citizen science. Uh, so someone is now doing a study with a couple of hundred people who have a diagnosis of ADHD. 
And what's beautiful about this study is half of the sample approximately are on medication and half aren't. Okay. So that's a piece of research. That's an easy to do piece of research. Um, there's a lot of uh, reports in the microdose world, for instance, of migraines. And no one I know in my study eliminated migraines, but they did drop them 70, 80, 90%. Though many of your listeners who deal with headaches and with migraines know there's really very little we do that helps. We can help certain classes of migraine sufferers, but not most of them. So here's a microdose, which has no discernible side effects that you would ever worry about. And there's a number of people um, who've found that it helped their migraines. A little more esoteric is called cluster headaches. Those are the worst pains known to human beings. High doses work well, but high doses need to be repeated. Microdosing, uh, when people come to us, we say, no, go to clusterbusters.com and learn all about what works for um, cluster headaches. And some people say, well, I just wanted to write you and say I was microdosing and my cluster headaches went away. So for some people, that's a possibility. So we have some areas where we have enough evidence that conventional research is going to find it very easy to do it right. That's exciting. I mean, the, these large cohort studies as well. I mean, the fact that it's already happening in places that have decriminalized it. Holland, you mentioned Portugal in the U.S., Oakland, Denver, Portland, several other cities have decriminalized it. So I think we'll see some really interesting results coming out over the coming years. And, you know, when we look back 100 years from now and, and people will say, you had slavery. That was terrible. And on the surface of it, that was terrible. And you took medications that helped everybody and you made them illegal. That was terrible. How could you have done that? And the answer is, this is a very curious answer. Psychedelics were made illegal in the United States because President Nixon found a way in which he could attack his enemies. And according to his Arlichman, his staff, it was never about the drugs. Did we know we were lying? Yes, of course we did. Okay. So the, re the renaissance or the revival uh, is simply taking away a bit of legislative dishonesty and getting us back to, gee, these drugs seem to be, maybe they're helpful for people. Gee, you know, there's a malaria drug, an anti-malaria drug, I guess one would call it, uh, that you take it, but you very, very often people have heavy nightmares and they have to make that trade-off of, is it worth it? but it's a, it's a very valuable drug. Psychedelics have almost, particularly microdosing, are among the pharmacologically safest drugs we know, okay? And that they're illegal is simply a curiosity uh, of political reality, not scientific reality and not medical reality. What's embarrassing for the medical community is they invented a whole lot of theories of why they were illegal, even though they knew better. Yeah, where the polit political situation leads the science as opposed to the other way around. And it's called rational, you know, in, in psychology, there's called rationalization where you make up stuff after the fact so it doesn't look like you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks like, you know, the medical community, unfortunately, did that.
but it's now releasing it. And probably it is because the, the truth is so many of the people who are listening to this program have had psychedelic experience. They may have had it in high school. They may have had it in college. Uh, I find in the medical community, um, everyone took advanced organic chemistry. <laughs> and that was a time when amazing percentage of people, while they were trying to figure out how to invent different molecules, said, well, why don't I do, you know, LSD or mescaline while I'm, well, I have to do a project anyway. <laughs> so a lot of people in the medical community and who end up in the FDA and in the enforcement community have all now had psychedelic experience. Now, let me give you the number. Since LSD, we're talking just about LSD, not about psilocybin, not about all the others, just LSD, just since they were made illegal, about 30 million Americans have taken. That's all high dose. Wow. So, though, and if you do it by education, those are the more educated half of the country. So there's a huge awareness that the laws are pointless or, or just are bad for people's health. Yep. And that the, the thing that, that the health provider needs to do is when they're asked about psychedelics, either learn something, admit ignorance, but don't say, well, I can't talk about it because they're illegal. Because your client is going to say, I've just lost respect for you because you just found a way to avoid dealing with my genuine issue, question, and problem. Absolutely. Yeah, the trust, the trust that you have to develop and, you know, being overly paternalistic in some of these ways, it makes, you know, is, is, is big. Well, being paternalistic is to be a good father. <laughs> I'm not against being paternal <laughs> or maternal. Uh, what I don't want is someone that says, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> I say, wait, 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 this is, this is medicine. I'm a client. You're the physician or the nurse or whoever. I, you can tell me you don't know anything or you're not supposed to talk about it, but you can't say, let's not talk about it. Because then we'll go back 50 years and say, you know, um, I'd like to discuss having birth control. Okay. Remember, birth control was illegal in this country, and then it got legal if you were married. Yeah. Okay. And there was a court case, not about birth control, but about information for birth control, because it was illegal to tell people about it. So medicine does not... Uh, leap ahead it kind of gets shoved from behind and the wonderful thing about citizen science is when you have 30 million people who already have experience you can get to the, the question of is this good for you now with your condition is this bad for you now etc should you get coaching should you get support should you go to jamaica and go to a resort uh, should you go to holland and and go to a, a retreat um, should you go to peru uh, those are real questions, and either you have answers or you should know where to send people for answers. Absolutely, and that's why we recommend your book and several other resources, Michael Pollan, Roland Griffiths, they all fall, Rachel Yehuda, yeah. all fall into this category. You see, the nice thing is there now are resources. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, my book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, is, is used more as a resource than I would really like, because what it says is that um, what I said 11 years ago is we haven't gone much past that. Now, we've gone way past it with microdosing, but the high-dose method that's been developed is actually replicating exactly what we developed in the 1960s. Hmm. Comfortable living room-like set, flowers, paintings, nice feel, nothing medical-looking or smelling, 
a man and a woman supporting you and a lot of support on both ends. I mean, that's a wonderfully expensive but wonderfully successful system. And we developed it in the 1960s because it worked um, and it still works. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's that's the protocol now for a lot of things. MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which which Dr. Huda, as you know, I know you just spoke at Mount Sinai, that's where she is, yeah. is doing FDA-cleared trials at the VA with patients who have um, PTSD. Um, so really well-defined use cases that are making the case better than anyone else can that these things need to be explored more. Well, the, here's the problem I found, and I got it really from Mount Sinai and some other medical groups I've talked to, is medical students seem to be trained to ask, what is the research on this? Meaning, what is the particular kind of Western double-blind, et cetera, research when it's inappropriate as a research design, and it's asking them to deny common sense? So when I was talking to medical students, it, it was, I watched, it was hard for them to say, well, if Reddit has 200,000 people discussing microdosing, maybe that information is as valid as 12 people in a study done by John Hopkins. And it was, what I watched is it was hard because there's so much um, emphasis on if it isn't in the research you can't, you, you can't do anything. Yeah. And I'm on the explorer side, which is the only way you're going to do research is if somebody gives you something of interest that you want to explore. Yeah. I think the nuance is key. And one, one point I'll, I make to medical students too, about biostatistics and the, the design is the Purdue Pharma case, right? Where they took this one study, one report uh, in a hospital setting. And the conclusion from that study was opioids were not addictive. Oxycontin was not addictive. And that one study was used and touted by the salespeople of Purdue and several others. CME continuing education credit was given for it that fast forward 10, 15, 20 years led to much too much prescription of the Oxycontin. And then now this massive opioid crisis we still have. So it can be used just because there isn't a study doesn't mean it's not a valid therapy or treatment. And just because there is a study doesn't mean it's completely safe um, because things can change. Well, let's look at now and then people say, well, aren't there research studies that show microdosing has no effect? And I say, it looks like that. If you read them closely, maybe not, but let's assume they're good. There are ways you can design a study where you won't show an effect. Hmm. Uh, for instance, I have here a new headache preparation and I'm holding it in my hand and it's better than anything on the market. But I was told to do a study. And so I found as most studies are very healthy people and I divided them into two groups. And one I gave the, my mixture and the other I gave the most successful headache medication. And um, there was no difference between the two groups. Hmm. In fact, no one in the group had a headache either before, during or after the study. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Get that point. So learning how to design and, and at least a couple of the studies which show no effect, that was the point of their doing them. Yeah. So they had an enormous bias to find that there was no effect. Hmm. And some of the other studies, I think a little more mature, said, wow, we didn't find an effect. Let's look at what we did. And what they're finding is, again, the sample is critical. Also, the timing is critical. There are a few things you learn. 
And I think the opiate study, I suspect if I read it, it was very short term, is my guess. Six months less, yeah. Okay, so, you know, how long does it take to get addicted? And if also, if you're the company, remember, we know that the there is no law that forces a pharmaceutical company to reveal all of its studies to the FDA. Guess what? If you're a pharmaceutical company, what studies are you not likely to share? Yeah. Okay, and they've tightened up some of the rules on that, and you can get hold of the studies that weren't submitted, but it's really hard. Um, so the Western medical model, and I, I keep saying that, is different than the, um, than the Eastern or the Chinese or a lot of others, which are, again, plant-based, but they're all based on, did it help people in a real-world setting? There's a technical term that's really valuable if you get nothing else. It's called real-world evidence. <laughs> and what it means is, this is a wonderful term and a technical paper, the end state of seeing if a drug is valuable is not any of the studies done by any neutral party or the manufacturer. So real world evidence with psychedelics, it's kind of the other way, which is we have thousands, literally thousands of years of results that we are now filtering through the medical filter to see what makes sense. Yeah. And that's a very different model. And it, it's not surprising that there's some differences between laboratory and real world. That's really fascinating. That's well nuanced. Um, I, I mean, we could talk for hours about this topic and I certainly want to have you say some final words on it. But I did want to give some time towards your latest book, Symphony of Cells, because I found it personally very satisfying. I mean, fascinating too, because you know most of us think about moods and that we are the same person there's an i a very strong ego and we have um you know we just have a bad day or, or in a bad mood or a little hungry or hangry your book is interesting because it lays a lot of the evidence and some interesting theories around multiple selves theory and how we actually have a symphony going on well hopefully what the book has is as little theory as i could possibly manage because observations to me are, are much more much easier to work with and you don't have to you don't have to defend an observation you know um the patient died there's no there's no theory yeah. okay <laughs> we can say why they died but the important issue is there so what what we start with people we say have you ever been angry with yourself okay and everybody goes yeah and we say who is the other person and everybody goes uh, 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 because they don't have a vocabulary because we've been brought up to imagine we're consistent. And what we know, especially if we've ever lived with anyone else, we're consistent maybe, but they're not. <laughs> How could you have done this? <laughs> I, I don't know what came over me. My favorite is I was beside myself. I love that because the image of who's, who's sitting next to. So we know that we move in and out of uh, major mental states. And we call themselves, um, there's a page in the book where we have 50 different words that have been used by other people along the centuries to deal with the problem that we're not consistent. But if you think of us as a, as a collective, and our goal is to not be consistent, but to be supportive. So the part of me, for instance, that is talking to you is not the part of me that I'm going to show when my two little dogs run after me and say, oh, my God, you're back. I love you. OK, the same parts of me aren't in use. 
we all have an example, which is we all go to, to large social events in our family. And we all know there are certain pressures that happen because we are being treated as if we were usually younger. You know, when, my, when I was about 50 and my mother looked at me and she said, don't you think you should put on a sweater? Okay. And I looked at her and I know she had rather poor circulation and she was always cold. Okay. So I understood where it came from, but I looked at her and I thought, I've actually got a pretty good idea by now of whether I need a sweater or not. But when I'm with my mother, there's a tendency to be a child. And what I was seeing in her is a tendency of her to be a mother. So we have those selves. If your goal is to have yourselves working for you in harmony, the world begins to make sense. And if you don't demand consistency from other people, you will find that you understand them better and you start to forgive them the parts that you don't like. And then you realize, well, I could also forgive myself for the parts that I don't like. In fact, I could even look at the parts I don't like and see what they need and see if there's some other way they can be um, satisfied rather than say getting drunk on holidays, which the whole body doesn't like. <laughs> so that's what the book's about. And it has literally a thousand examples. And what's wonderful, it's not a self-help book, it's an awareness book. So when people read it, they say, oh, I'm beginning to see the world differently. I don't have to do anything. You know, if you go out with a geologist and you start looking at a cliff, you'll never see that cliff the same way ever again, because he's told you what all these incredible things that you're seeing and that, you know, 300 feet up there's where the seashells are and so forth. And you begin to, to see the world differently and you don't turn that off. So learning, it's a wonderful thing about learning is it's, it's hard to lose it. <laughs> you can you can neglect it and you can forget where it is but you say oh yes oh the atomic weight of cesium i knew that <laughs> okay and it's in there somewhere and and there's a part of you that actually remembers that stuff well i i mean i really love the book and as i mentioned before we started the episode perspective altering and uh, I can see the benefits already of being able to be more compassionate interactions that we have with each other, which we definitely need in this day and age. Well, well, let's take a medical example, which just comes to mind is what's the percentage of prescriptions that are one, not filled. We know that that's an economic question. What are the percentage of prescriptions that aren't taken? A huge percentage. Now, who is not taking them? Okay. The person who came to you and said, I really want something for my gout. Okay. They want to take that medication, but parts of them don't. So if I'm a practitioner, I want to be sensitive to whether I'm getting kind of a buy-in from an, enough of the person. So they're going to do what I medically, you know, what I spent 10 to 12 years learning how to do. Because if they come back a month later and they say, well, I still feel the same. And I said, you take the medication? Well, yeah, a couple of times. <laughs> That's a very hard moment. Yeah. Okay, because you know if you get mad at your patient, that isn't going to work. <laughs> okay, but if you indicate, oh, yeah, so there's a part of you that really doesn't like medication. Oh, yeah, there's a part of me that just doesn't like any medication. I mean, I don't even like that part of me. I have to fight with it to even do toothpaste. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's what we all need, especially people who are willing to be permeable to new ideas like our audience. Uh, yeah. They're listening to this because they're permeable uh, to, to go look at that, uh, because I think 
having that perspective, just like other perspectives like stoicism or what other frameworks for approaching life, I think is invaluable, especially at an early age if they're developing that. Well, it's also this this past couple of years, anyone in the medical profession has been under excessive stress. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we talk about the mental illness problem, the medical profession has had it hardest. Yeah. You just don't, you know, when you're working 12, 15 hour days and people keep dying on you, there's no way out except to compartmentalize, but there are compartments. And what, what many of us have learned is, is people will say, okay, now I'm going to put on my work clothes. See, that's a hint to yourself to be the work person. And when you come home, you take off the work, right? And one of the real questions during early COVID was, how can I go to work in my pajamas, okay? Because <laughs> I can, there's no reason I can't. You don't know at the moment, we're on Zoom, you and I visually, but you don't know if I'm wearing pants, right? <laughs> but it turns out an awful lot of people figured out that they needed to get up from their bedroom and they needed to get dressed to go to work and then they would walk to where their computer was and that would be quote the office and and they could work that way so we all are working with selves all the time and if you do it consciously you know it's a lot easier totally 100 percent recommend osmosis is a teaching company we like to fill in knowledge gaps if you could snap your fingers and teach our audience anything a, a video a course a book another book what would it be and why well, at this point, though, I'd probably like to teach kind of the, the science and research of microdosing. Um, until the federal government allows you to use it, it just makes people unhappy. <laughs> you know, it's like giving a course on what restaurants to go in Paris. However, you're not allowed to go to France. <laughs> <laughs> so if I were to, you know, to magically, I would probably do something with selves because that's like putting a tool in your toolkit. Hmm. That's like saying, well, I have a screwdriver. And I say, well, I have this thing. And if you open the top, there's six or seven different screwdriver heads. It's really more useful. And you said, but, but my screwdriver is really expensive. And I said, well, we weren't talking about expense. We were talking about what would make you able to solve more problems more easily and be a better practitioner with less personal stress. Hmm. Now, I admit the way I just said that sentence sounds like, oh my, info commercial, he's about to sell me a substance that only one elderly researcher in Japan has discovered, and I can only sell it on Instagram. But that was your question. The answer is it would be very helpful for for people, because again, I have enough evidence now where people write and say, whoa, my life just got easier because I am not confusing this composite notion of a single self with with reality. 100%, I agree. And, and actually, as I was reading that book again, I was thinking, what would an osmosis video look like if we were to convey that? Because it is it is a perspective worth considering for most people, so. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say something more general that doesn't have my, my kind of hook into it. But you see, the nice thing is when you have something that works, you want to share it with people. Totally. Yeah. You know, when you found a candy bar that's delicious, but it's only made in, you know, in Estonia, you know, you want to share it with people. So selves, it turns out, is found everywhere. But since we have an overall system that says you only have one self, we don't have the vocabulary. We can't distinguish. Yeah. And we can. We do have the vocabulary. We can distinguish. It just means letting go of one of those many, many, many things we learned that aren't true. My last question for you is, 
what advice would you give to our audience about approaching their careers in healthcare or careers in general in this day and age? The thing about healthcare um, is it's a very much harder profession than those of us not in it know. And that being a good role model turns out to be more valuable than people think. So there's, there's an enormous gain for your patients, clients, et cetera, if you're in good health. That's an opener. And, and the other is understanding selves will cut the stress level in your life. So there are ways to make your, your physical and your emotional life easier that the system wasn't designed to teach you. I mean, very simply, there's no category in the FDA for wellness. So you're, you have to have a defect in order to participate in the system. But as human beings, we don't work that way at all. I feel good. I'd like to feel better. Oh, what can my doctor help? Well, kind of, because he's going to say, have a good diet, you exercise, sleep well. Um, and you say, well, anything from the medical side, he says, well, don't teach us anything. I mean, I don't know. I know it used to be true, but they never used to teach nutrition in medical schools. It's frightening. <laughs> we had about three days of nutrition when I was in med school. Uh, and so, well, I, that's okay. I mean, I'm horrified. Okay. Yeah, I know. Because I'll tell you the one thing I know about every patient you've ever seen and will see is they eat. <laughs> okay. They may not have sex. They may not even be able to go to the bathroom, but they will eat. <laughs> you better it's useful to find out what that's about <laughs> well, i love that advice to be a role model and um there's this famous physician albert schweitzer uh, had a big impact on a lot of uh, a lot of us and oh yeah one of his great quotes is um example is not the main thing in influencing others it's the only thing well it's it's see example is kind of even a little separate role model says you can do this you know when your patient says I don't know, it's really hard to lose weight. And you say, I know it's hard to lose weight. And when I lost 20 pounds, it was really hard. And, the, and suddenly the patient's with you. It makes you more relatable. And yeah, then you, you even have a playbook that worked for you, may not work for your patient, but at least there's some empathy and compassion there. So yeah. that's good advice. Um, is there anything else I haven't asked you that, that you're dying to get <laughs> to our audience? No, I think you've actually <laughs> done a remarkable job in a small bit of time. Um, and I think your own openness and your own background uh, made me feel very much like um, I didn't know we were such good friends. <laughs> it was one of my favorite interviews, Dr. Fadman. So, I mean, or Jim, either way, whichever self I'm talking to, it's, uh, it's a real honor again to meet you. And both your books have had profound influences, not just on me, but many, many people I know. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time. This was wonderful. And, and I've been admiring really what this site is about and that, that we need this kind of um, education into the system, but not of the system. Hmm. Because the system has its own needs that, that build in limitations. It's not its fault. Every bureaucracy ossifies. It's just, you know, every trees, trees get rigid. You know, it's not their, it's not their fault. <laughs> Well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. And with that, uh, I would like to thank our audience, too, for being open-minded and, and taking a deep interest in this, in this interview. And uh, hopefully you'll have picked up at least one or two tools that will help yourselves or your patients. Thanks again. Thank you very much. For 
For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.